Like working from home? Imagine doing it from anywhere in the world. You can focus your money and your time into travel experiences, and nothing's going to really slow you down when you hit the road traveling. Coming up, a digital nomad tells us how you can do it, too. When you fly between Anchorage and Seattle, be sure to book a window seat. You also get to see one of the most amazing coastlines in North America, really one of the most amazing coastlines in the world. A geologist tells us what the view from an airplane can show us across North America. And the feeling you get when you look at Grand Canyon may be hard to put into words. A writer from Flagstaff tells stories about the characters that populate the canyon, human and otherwise. That butterfly, depending on the species, can tell you so many things. It can tell you that the climate is changing and warming or not. It can tell you stuff about the flora. From Grand Canyon to anywhere, come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves' Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com. It's like being under the influence of nature when you hike, stargaze, or just catch butterflies around the Grand Canyon. A Flagstaff novelist explains. And we'll discover one of the greatest shows on Earth from 30,000 feet in the air. Coming up, we get tips for what you can see from your plane's window seat as it crosses the USA. That's coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. But first, let's explore what it takes to be a digital nomad, where you get to travel by working from a home base in another country. Imagine if your life was untethered to any particular place. You had a career that was steady and well-paying, and you just traveled all the time. <laughs> Working remotely, you are a digital nomad. More and more people are doing just that. And travel writer and entrepreneur Mike Swigunski, he's been the digital nomad working and living in about 80 countries in the last decade, and he's written a book on the lifestyle. Mike joins us today from his home base in the Republic of Georgia and shares ideas from his book called Global Career, How to Work Anywhere and Travel Forever. Thanks so much for having me on, Rick. Excited to chat with you. So, Mike, I'm a traveler, and I've had the same job, the same phone number, the same zip code now for over 40 years, and I travel a lot. You're a digital nomad, and that's quite a different kind of traveler. What exactly does that mean? And just very briefly, where have you gone in the last decade? Yeah, so over the last decade, I've been to more than 85 different countries, and a big portion of that has probably been in, in Europe, Asia, South America, and a few stints to Africa, but I would say Africa is kind of the next frontier for me to explore. You're working remotely as you travel. Yeah, so I've been working remotely for more than five years now. For the previous five years, I was kind of showing up in physical locations and finding jobs that were going to advance my career. And right. each kind of job was kind of a stepping stone to get me to where I am now. It must have been kind of a, a freeing thing, sort of a liberation when you realized I don't need to look for work where I'm traveling. I can travel where I want to go and uh, look into the remote travel world for my employment. Yeah, once I kind of had that remote lifestyle, it was everything that I'd always dreamed of, having that flexibility to be able to pack up my little backpack and my laptop and just kind of work from anywhere, from the comfort of my home uh, in any location that I was uh, interested in traveling to. 
Psychologically, are you looking for your ultimate home, like the place where you really belong, or is is the journey itself kind of your goal? I would say right now I'm looking to have a travel hub where I can essentially visit countries and visit the world from. So maybe it's spending you know nine months in that travel hub and then three months traveling around the world. Whatever the breakdown is, I want to have some sort of location where I can have a little bit more deeper connections and roots and then be able to travel from that right. location. No, that seems like a nice, um, a nice mix. Now, when you, you settle in, it's like you almost never unpack or, or you're kind of traveling, but you're kind of at home. How do you do that? I know in your book you talk about the importance of gear and, quote, the setup and minimalism. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, I would say my approach is a very minimalistic travel approach. I have one 40-liter backpack that I've been living out of for the past three years. It's very small. It can fit, you know, on pretty much every airplane I've been on. And the reason I did this was because I was traveling so much and kind of just started calculating the amount of time I was wasting checking a bag, having the chances of losing stuff, and just adding extra stress. And I calculated one year that I saved a couple days in time by not having to go to the check-in counter. I just show up to the security with my mobile boarding pass, walk straight through, have a much more you know, fast-paced time at the airport and saving myself a lot less stress and a lot of time. You're more nimble that way, too. I'm, I'm similar to you. I, I spend 100 days a year on the road in a normal year, and uh, I never check a bag. I live out of my, my carry-on-the-airplane-sized bag. I always remember the, the dimensions, 9 by 22 by 14 inches. When I get home, after 100 days on the road with that bag, it occurs to me I didn't compromise anything. All I needed was in that bag. And it's kind of odd. I, I, I feel like I'm obligated now to expand back into my more complicated material world. But if you really are honest about it and thoughtful about it, you don't need that much. And you got that minimalism. And there are real perks to having that minimalist lifestyle when it comes to what you need in the way of a toiletries kit, for instance, and a wardrobe. Yeah, there's so many benefits. I, I would say you don't have to worry about accumulating a lot of stuff. You can focus your money and your time into travel experiences, and nothing's going to really slow you down when you hit the road traveling. You know, any additional stuff, something else has to be sacrificed or given away uh, right. in my travel setup. So I'm a travel photographer. So when I go to a country, that's the thing I like to take. I like to take photos and capture unique experiences when I'm visiting <laughs> a, a location. And luckily, that, that doesn't add any extra weight to my uh, travel and you Well, you're, you're a digital nomad and your souvenirs are digital too. Uh, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with digital nomad Mike Swigunski. He's got tips for how to live and work from almost anywhere. Mike has authored a book called Global Career, How to Work Anywhere and Travel Forever. And he blogs at globalcareerbook.com. So, Mike, as even today as we were setting up this uh, interview, I'm in Seattle and you're in, in the Republic of Georgia, <laughs> we had to fiddle around with the uh, internet and so on. And I just thought your whole world, if you're working remotely from a place like Colombia or Korea or Georgia or Australia or all the places you've lived and worked, it's relying on good internet and digital communication. How does that work? You must be an expert at it. Is it really just a matter of really knowing it well? Or are there limits and, and uh, physical frustrations that even a pro is, is exasperated by? Yeah, I would say sometimes the internet is just out of your hands. But luckily with my setup, I have, you know, the local Wi-Fi. That's something that I can always access. Usually I get a local SIM card whenever I'm traveling. And my backup, my go-to thing is a Google Fi SIM card where 
essentially I can pop it into my phone. I can hotspot to my laptop. So this way I kind of have three different options for internet and Wi-Fi and phone connectivity that I'm mm -hmm. really never going to find a scenario where all of those three don't work. And it's kind of, you know, made my setup foolproof. So if any occasion does happen, I'm always able to access internet, get work done and keep going. So Mike, what was that SIM card again that works really well for you? So Google Fi, it works in 170 different countries. You get a US-based phone number and you only pay per the amount of data that you're using. So it, it is a $20 a month fee, base fee. But from that, if you use one gigabyte of data, you pay $10 for that and so on. Of course, you talk about this in your book, Global Career, these sort of practicalities of being a digital nomad. For me, a stress point is just, what if I lost my computer? If, if somebody rips off your computer or you lose it on a flight or whatever, can you just go buy a new computer and download everything from the cloud and you're right back where you were? Yeah, essentially, I have my setup where every year I kind of just wipe it from scratch. I do occasional backups every month. So that way, I, if I were to lose my laptop or it was to get stolen, I could easily set it up. But everything is so cloud-based for me that... It doesn't really matter. Even if I didn't have that backup, it'd be really easy for me to get up and going again. Mike Swigunski is joining us from his apartment in Tbilisi, Georgia right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's the author of Global Career and offers tips for working as a digital nomad at globalcareerbook.com. In your book, you talk about geo-arbitrage. What, what is arbitrage? And very briefly, how does that apply to digital nomadic lifestyle? So... Essentially, geo-arbitrage, in my definition, is elevating your lifestyle for a fraction of the cost. And it's essentially being able to earn U.S. dollars and spend in the local currency. So earn in dollars, spend in pesos. And for every dollar, you're, you're going to get so much more value. You're going to be able to save more of your income. You're going to be able to invest that savings into your business, other ventures, and essentially, you can live for a fraction of the cost, and you can have a better lifestyle by utilizing geo-arbitrage. Hey, when you're traveling, how do you find your tribe? You know, are you going to, when you come into a new place, are you committed to connecting with the expats and not, not even having to learn the language, and you got that whole social world there? Or are you um, sort of embracing the local situation and connecting with locals that have nothing to do with the expat community? So my approach is to find a blend. And I think everyone's going to need to find what works best for them. And I think each country or city is going to be a little bit different. My approach is to usually have a 50-50 where I have 50% of expat friends, 50% of local friends. And I would say it's, it's very easy to kind of immerse yourself with that. Some people might need to sway, you know, to one side or the other. And I think depending on the country that you're going to be living in, but I would say at any time, you need to be immersing yourself. You are a guest in this country. You need to try to immerse mm -hmm. yourself as much as possible. And that's truly how you learn about the local culture and kind of experience what it's like to, to live and travel as a local. I would think things would go much better with that, that sort of go local attitude. And at the same time, you could connect with your expat friends. I've got friends in St. Petersburg in Russia, and they've got a tight social group, but they also love getting into the local culture. So you come to a new country, and you do that every few months. What's the checklist? Just very briefly, what do you have to do when you, when you say, okay, I'm going to stay here for a while and work now? Yeah, so normally the first thing I do is I get on Facebook, and I'll just search Digital Nomad and then the city name. I'll put that in. I'll join a few of the most popular Facebook groups, and I'll just go see what type of events are happening. And if you're in a location where 
there aren't many events or you can't really access this crowd, try to create your own type of events. And I've done that in the past where I wanted to connect with other online entrepreneurs. So I've created mastermind groups where, you know, it's a group of five or six people. We're meeting every two weeks discussing business problems that we're having. And I would say if you can't find your tribe, then you got to go there and create it yourself. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with digital nomad Mike Swigunski, and he's filled with tips for how to live and work from almost anywhere. And he's shared that in his book, Global Career, How to Work Anywhere and Travel Forever. Mike, tell us just to close it out. You're in Tbilisi in Georgia right now. Is that where you're settled for a little while or, or where do you what do you dream of next? Yeah, so Tbilisi checks pretty much every box for my perfect travel hub. And it sounds like as long as things stay open for us here to stay here long term, that's where we're going to stay and plant some roots. I really love it here. It's got a really great cost of living and value for money. There's a lot of great long-term visa options. The internet and expat crowd is perfect. It's a really good environment. There's a lot of delicious local foods. So Tbilisi is going to be that hub. And one of the great things is it's connected to a lot of countries that I'm interested in traveling to, like the stands is, is kind of the next place that I really want to explore. And you can hop on a plane and go to one of the other stands and come back and, and you're still working remotely wherever you lay your head. Mike Swigunski, thanks so much and best wishes with your work and your travels as you weave it together as a digital nomad. Thanks so much, Rick. Mike Swigunski talks more about digital security issues at ricksteves.com slash radio. Next, we dig into the Travel with Rick Steves archives for a couple of fun domestic travel ideas. In a bit, an Arizona writer looks at the personality of Grand Canyon. But first, a geologist recommends the stories America has to tell from the window seat of an airplane. From famous landmarks to curious designs in the earth, your view from a window seat can reveal a lot about the places you're flying over. Geologist James Jackson teamed up with writer Daniel Matthews to provide an illustrated guide to the many landscapes you'll see beneath the major flight corridors across America. James joins us from Portland to point out his favorite air routes that you can explore the next time you fly across the country. Jim, thanks for being here. Oh, Rick, thank you very much for having me. This book is incredible. I just uh, had so much fun looking through it. What inspired you to go to all the work to really document all the views from flying all over the United States? Oh, probably too many hours spent on airplanes away from home more than anything else. But my initial flights were, you know, as a child, I guess I was five or six in the, uh, the early 50s, and we would fly from New York to uh, Kansas City to visit my grandparents. Uh, my father loved flying, and he loved looking out the window, and uh, wherever we went, he would point things out as we flew along, and I, I think that stayed with me uh, really until I became a geologist and then studied uh, the interpretation of air photos and um, I thought for sure somebody had written this book 30 years ago. But when I went looking for it, I never found it. So when I finally had some time having retired, I uh, sat down with Dan Matthews, and we put together a proposal. And oh, about four years later, the book was published. Thumbing through your book and imagining uh, flying across all this territory, it occurred to me you can learn a lot, not only about geology, but about geography from a plane's vantage point. You know, you can actually see minerals from the air, can't you? Well, you can't so much see minerals, but you can see how the land or the earth underneath the land has either been deformed or is being deformed or is being transformed by geologic processes. Now, I, I know that's a, a big mouthful, but when we go across the mountain ranges in the east, I'm thinking of the Appalachians, uh, the east side of the Appalachians, the rocks have really been tortured. 
and they've thrown up the ridges and the valleys that we see in Pennsylvania and Virginia and the Carolinas. These ridges and valleys from the air look like they're folded, and in fact, they are folded. And then when you get out to the Midwest, really what you're seeing is, uh, depending on where you are, a, a landscape which was previously covered by glaciers, and the traces are there. It's there to be seen. And south of that landscape, we see a land which was largely created by the drainage as those glaciers melted. And then, of course, when you get out in the West, you see the big mountains and the processes that created those. Your book talks about looking specifically at things you'll see along certain flight corridors, but also... Your book talks in general terms how you can notice a delta or a canyon or a volcano and so on. Yeah, well, the idea that we had was to take the routes which are most popular that account for 80 or 90 percent of all passenger miles and give you something specific to look at every 20 minutes, so about every 200 miles. Uh, but, of course, you've got 20 minutes between spots, and there's things to see. And so in each of our uh, entries, we tried to give you a, a context that would place that locality either before you saw it or after you saw it. And so that's, that's why we have the general discussions as well as the very specific discussions. So talking in general terms, you can see land patterns, uh, state boundaries, homestead borders. What, what would you look for in, in that regard? Well, you can't really see state boundaries unless they're a river. Okay. Um, there is one international boundary, though, that you can just about always see. If you're flying a southern route along the U.S.-Mexican border, land use changes on the border are very, very dramatic. And you can certainly see that. We have a great image of Mexicali, which shows the border. Will it just be more lush generally north of the border and, and more uh, burned off south of the border? North of the border, we tend to have more irrigation. Uh, south of the border, we actually tend to have larger cities, if there's a city there at all. Um, Juarez is much bigger than its American counterpart, and this, this runs true all up and down the And uh, that's the just border. the Macchiadora, all the cheap industries, right? Mostly it's the Macchiadoras. Right. That's, that's right, Rick. They've uh, brought a source of employment, which has drawn people. So that sucks people right up to the border. Also, you can, you can look out and, and you can see things from the sky that you, you wouldn't see really if you were driving around. There's these, uh, you mentioned the ovals in North Carolina, the, uh, the coastal plains there. Right, right. These things were only first recognized by air photos, which I found surprising, but I looked into it and Dan looked into it. And even the topographic mapping that people were doing in the, the first part of the 20th century didn't reveal the geometry and orientation of these, these ovals. But they, uh, they occur as ponds and they occur as low sags, which have been uh, made for our agriculture, drained, and uh, soils and placed on them. But the geometry of them is very peculiar. Uh, they are ovals. The long axis of the ovals are, are aligned in a specific northerly direction. And there are several arguments that are made as to their cause, and we really don't have a, a sound uh, consensus. So they're mysterious. They these. could be uh, sort of UFO things or, or uh, prehistoric <laughs> things, or, or what made them? What, tell us a little bit about those. Well, there, there are two thoughts. One is that they might represent uh, an asteroid or a meteorite shower hitting the Earth, and that would account for their geometry and their alignment. Uh, the other thought is that maybe they represent just uh, typical wind patterns, maybe wind patterns that set up during the, uh, the Pleistocene when uh, the winds were perhaps stronger and the, uh, uh, the groundwater was, was quite different due to the different precipitation patterns. Okay. And something a little less mysterious would simply be what you call the, the pizza farms. <laughs> the pizza farms. Yeah, that's Dan's term. I um, like that term because I, when you drive around, you don't quite see it, but up above, you see these uh, round green bits of farm country. Right. This is a way of irrigating the land so that you don't use very much water. The idea is you typically have a, a pump in the middle of the field, which reaches an aquifer some, some distance below. There's a well there. And now you can run the water 
through these long arms and drop it with a very short fall from the nozzle to the ground of a few inches or maybe a foot. And you don't waste any water in this semi-arid country. And it, it makes for a very efficient means of irrigation, a very efficient use of water where water is hard to come by. But from the air, it gives you this uh, astonishing pattern of large circles that go on forever. So you're using water more efficiently, but you're not using a little bit of the land that's outside of the pizza. That's true. There's, uh, there's the corners of the box. The and, corners and of the box. fallow. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jim Jackson. And Jim and his partner Dan Matthews have written a fascinating and practical book called America from the Air, a guide to the landscape along your route. And it's basically a tool you take with you so uh, you, when you're gazing out the window, you know what you're looking at. Now, you understand where the planes fly in the country, and you've uh, broken it out to help us be more likely to have routes that we can follow. Tell us a little bit about that, Jim. Well, basically, the FAA has set up what are essentially highways in the air, which are radar-guided, and some routes you will always fly exactly the same track. If you're going from New York to Washington, D.C., you will always go over Dover, Delaware. You're not going outside that corridor. Uh, if you're flying from Seattle down to L.A., you've basically got one route. You're going to go over Portland. The FAA has published maps which show these high-altitude corridors, and so we obtained those maps. But then we wondered, well, how frequently do the planes go over a specific route if there's more than one? So we used a variety of flight tracking software to track commercial flights. I compiled oh, several hundred flights per day, and I did this for about six months. And then we placed these on maps in the book so that if you're flying from Atlanta to Miami, we have a yellow line, and that's where 90% of the flights go. Huh. Uh, the 10% that don't go on that line are probably being diverted uh, due to thunderstorms. And so it's, it's much less random where you go in the air than you might think. This has been the case now for, oh, probably 50 years. And it's because it's an economy to avoid the weather, and it's probably safer, too. It's an economy to avoid the weather, and it's economy if you're going westbound to get with the jet stream, and if you're going eastbound to avoid the jet stream. So a plane will fly 100 miles out of the way just to get a free hitch on the jet stream? Absolutely. Yeah, they'll do that on the long-haul flights. The three- and four-hour flights, you know, they have a lot of flexibility, and, and they utilize it. But the short-haul flights, uh, Washington to um, Chicago, New York to Chicago, New York to Atlanta, they don't have a lot of flexibility. And more often than not, if there's weather in the way, you know, they just put the plane on the ground a little bit longer and, until that thunderstorm moves out of the, uh, okay. the flight path. Now, in these big corridors... I guess there's, there's two levels. It's like a double-decker highway, and just 1,000 feet is all you need clearance for planes flying the same route, basically, to go um, past each other in opposite directions? Right. That's the vertical clearance. And then uh, if they're flying in the same route in parallel, they're supposed to be uh, five miles apart. And that's typically the case until you get into uh, uh, that final approach to the airport. But vertical clearance, only 1,000 feet? Yeah, you hope their altimeters are good, and Whoa. they have been. That's interesting. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking uh, with Jim Jackson, and Jim's written a practical book called America from the Air. To help us know what we're looking at out the window of an airplane, our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Tony's on the line in Houston, Texas. Tony, thanks for your call. Hey, no problem, Rick. Yeah, do you have a comment for Jim about uh, America from the Air? This is more about Europe from the Air, actually. If, if we can make that a subtopic, I was uh, flying in the Air Force for, for several years, and one of the most awe-inspiring sights that, that I ever saw was I was flying from uh, Prince Sultan Air Base in Saudi Arabia, which is south of Riyadh, up to England, to RAF Lakenheath, and we went just by Mount Etna in Sicily in the summer of '03 when it was erupting, and it was just an awe-inspiring sight to see that. 
from 31,000 feet. And, uh, it, it was, it was just, it was awesome to me. I'd never seen anything that, like that in, in years of flying, even at dusk, seeing the glow. It, it was just an amazing sight. So what did it and, look like? <laughs> I guess it's kind of like you would imagine uh, the cauldron there. And I've, afterwards I've been up to Edna myself on land, but seeing it from the air, you know, uh, it was summer, so there was no snow, but you know, this just dark mass. And then right in the middle, the, the bubbling mm. lava, and smoke, and then there were some streams coming down. O three was a fairly strong eruption for right. Etna, so you had the rivers of lava coming down one side toward Catania, and it was it was a phenomenal sight to me. It's not that rare to be in Sicily when it's at least smoking, and uh, I've been there for an eruption too, and it's quite a spectacular experience. Tony, have you flown around the United States much? When I was in the Air Force, I flew E three, which basically it's a seven o seven with a big uh, radar frisbee on top for the uninitiated and flying a lot of circles and orbits all over the country, and you get a chance to look out the window a lot and see the landscape. It's amazing. You, you get to where you can pick out sites, towns, I mean, everything. At night, do you have a sense of what you're flying over at night, or is it just blackness down there? I think over time, you know, when it's uh, more the major metro areas of right. what you're doing, you just see the light, and, and you kind of know what it is. The bigger cities that sprawl out, your, your L.A.'s and Atlanta's and Dallas and Houston and those cities, you, you can recognize in a heartbeat. The Northeast is just a mass of, of light. One of the most awe-inspiring sights I've ever seen from an airplane window is coming into Mexico City at night on a very crisp night. And the lights, mm-hmm. you know, 10 million people or whatever it was back then, lights just stretching forever. It's an amazing phenomenon. And flying into cities like San Diego, into Lindbergh, a lot of passengers you see, if they've never flown in there, when you're approaching over the city, you get close to the buildings, you see the mountains. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see the looks on people's faces when they're coming into San Diego. Because the airport's right there, like because, the, because it's uh, right in the, in the town. Jim Jackson, uh, Tony's talking about volcanoes. Of course, you're probably not going to see Mount St. Helens erupting, but when you, <laughs> when you fly around the United States, what are the uh, volcanoes and the special mountains to look out for? The volcanoes are in the northwest, at least the ones that we like that are really tall and, and that you will certainly see if the weather is decent. Um, flying out of Seattle, you'll likely see Baker and Glacier. You'll certainly see Rainier if the weather is at all good. And in coming south of Rainier, you'll go over St. Helens. And even today, decades later, the landscape north of St. Helens, where the mountain collapsed and knocked down the trees, uh, it, it is still astonishing. It's a remarkable sight. And, of course, we put that on the cover of a book because of its, of its strong it's a presence. beautiful shot. Crater Lake is quite an outstanding sight from the air. And you very often see Crater Lake. And south of that, you'll see Shasta. Often in the distance, you'll see Lawson. And at that point, you, you run out of volcanoes. The, the other region of a variety of volcanic edifices is in the Albuquerque uh, to Denver area. You see them along the, the Rio Grande. Hey, Tony, it sounds like you're in an airport there ready to get on an airplane. Where are you flying today? Uh, me? I'm flying from Houston to London and then catching a connecting flight to Sicily. Now, you've flown Houston, London before. What do you anticipate seeing as you fly? Uh, well, this time I'm flying with my five-month-old daughter for the first time, so pretty much we're going to be dealing with her and not looking <laughs> out the window as much, so it'll be a new experience. All right. Hey, thanks for your call, Tony, and, and well, good luck you. With, your, show, with your daughter on Appreciate the flight. It. Okay, bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our guest, Jim Jackson, co-authored A Clever Guide with details about major buildings, stadiums, historic sites, and land features that you can see out the window of an airplane. His book, America from the Air, is organized by the principal flight paths across the USA. We have links with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Jim, when you're flying, you're above the weather, aren't you? Airplanes are, what, around 28,000 feet? 
uh, 28 to 30. Some of them get up to 40,000. The long haul uh, big jumbos will, will Is that fly right? 40,000. Yeah. Why would they go so high? Uh, because they can. It gets them out of the low-level traffic and they're able to go a little bit faster. Uh, the weather is usually far below that, right? All the clouds and... and uh, the... Yeah, most of the time if you're at 40,000 feet, you'll see no clouds. They'll be below you. You won't be flying through them. In the late summer when you have the really big thunderstorms uh, in the late afternoon, say up around Chicago, if you're at 40,000 feet, you might be at the tops or even below the tops of those big thunderheads, but they'll be off the wing. They won't fly through those because you get strong vertical air movements. And they do make a fantastic sight. Anything that you particularly uh, look for when you're looking at clouds? I really look for changes in clouds. I want to see the ground, and I, I'm always hopeful that we'll, Break in the clouds. we'll pass out of this cloud bank and have clear air. Let's talk about some specifics you're going to see. Uh, you can look down and actually see Corn Belt. You can see the Corn Belt. It's an interesting area. It's, it's Iowa, and it's an area with ample precipitation, so they don't need to do much irrigation. And the result is they use every square inch for either corn or the other crops, and your fields tend to form uh, nice little squares or rectangles, little boxes. Uh, university campuses. Our campuses are typically based on a model of Oxford or Cambridge, and so they have quads. And the quads, of course, are lawns, which are surrounded by buildings. If it's on four sides, it's the Oxford model. If the quad has one side open with three sides of buildings, that's the Cambridge model. And usually you can actually see the crisscross in the sidewalks, can't you, in the greens? You usually can. That's right. What about wind farms? Wind farms occur primarily in the west at this time. They're often located downwind of a major pass. We used to see just a few in the Southern California region, but now we see them all over the place. I think we're seeing more of them in Texas than any place else in the country. We see them out there on the high plains. Test tracks for cars. Most of those you're going to find in the Detroit area. The most impressive one, I think, is the General Motors track, which is north of Detroit. And it has this amazing series of uh, tracks which form a, a variety of interlocking, curving geometries. Huh. Have you ever noticed all the, the baseball fields in the spring season uh, area, Tempe and Phoenix? Down there, you'll see them in the spring. They'll be green. Often they'll have people on them, and you won't find people on baseball fields anyplace else in the country. You know, if you're flying, say, in, in February... Great reservoirs, the Lake Powell Reservoir and so on. Now, the Great Reservoirs usually are, are built where we have long valleys and areas of fairly high precipitation. So typically they're at the edges of mountain ranges rather than in the middle of them. Our interstate highway system is quite impressive. And from the air, you can see all these clovers and lots of infrastructure. Yeah, highway engineers, they seem to enjoy the geometry of not just the clover leaf, but several other shapes, uh, several other designs. It's almost artistic from the air, I find. Oh, some of them really are, yeah. And, you know, I'm fascinated by advertising that's actually designed to be seen from airplane windows. Indeed. As you're coming into most major airports, you'll see a lot of roofs have been um, let out to advertisers, and, and they'll be selling you any number of products. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been quizzing Jim Jackson on what to look for from the air, and he wrote the book on it, America from the Air, a guide to the landscape along your route. Jim, let's finish this off just by you explaining to us your favorite route when you're flying to look out the window anywhere in the United States. Well, if I really had my choice of day and weather, I would fly from Seattle to Anchorage. It's about a four-hour flight, and it's one big mountain range after another. And you also get to see one of the most amazing coastlines in North America, really one of the most amazing coastlines in the world. It's marked by several areas of extensive glaciers coming out of the mountains into the ocean. It is just an amazing sight. Wow, it sounds nice. Jim Jackson, thanks for writing America from the Air, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, and thank you very much.
Next, we land in Flagstaff to hear how a local author includes the nearby Grand Canyon in her work to let us travel back in time and in our imagination. 877-333-RICK is our number at Travel with Rick Steves. A writer like Margaret Earhart knows how the land that surrounds you can shape the stories you tell. A few years back, she wrote a mystery novel called The Butterflies of Grand Canyon. It's set in 1950s small-town Flagstaff, Arizona. The red dirt on Margaret's shoes is evidence of her work as a trail and river guide in the canyon. She's taught creative writing on the Navajo and Hopi reservations and even worked as a local firefighter. Margaret joins us from Flagstaff for a closer look at one of America's best-loved places. Thank you, Rick. (laughs) What an interesting combination. You're a guide in the Grand Canyon, and you've written this romantic mystery novel. Tell us how that works together, appreciation of nature and uh, being a a novelist. Well, I think uh, novelists have to be great observers. I actually have had very little science training, so I came to the Grand Canyon recently to see it in a way that was different from the way I had been seeing it for the last 30 years. Um, I came looking at the bugs and looking at the the flora as well and the animals. And that has proved so fascinating to me. My experience there was so much richer. Because you looked at the bugs. Now, how can that be? Well, have you ever looked at bugs, Rick? Actually, I have. A highlight of my Costa Rica trip was called the Nocturnal Bug Walk. And we walked uh-huh. down a path that you would just not even give two looks at during the daytime. And at night, Uh, it was a wonderland of fascinating bugs. Is there something similar going on in the Grand Canyon? Yes, although it doesn't just happen at night. (laughs) It's just that we miss so much in our daily lives. We miss so much by not looking closely. And I think novelists, our assignment is to look closely. Now, your book is set in the 1950s, and it has more to do with people than bugs, doesn't it? Well, people who are quite passionate about bugs, yes. I set my book in the 50s for no reason that I could figure out until it was halfway written. And then I realized that was a time in the national parks in general when we were moving from sort of Renaissance men at the head of the parks to a more law and order type of culture there. I had to include myself in this book, and only partially, of course, am I Jane Merkel, our heroine. She arrives from points east, and she's very young at the time, which I I am not. And she falls in love with Grand Canyon, and... Of course, you know, she falls in love with the representatives of Grand Canyon, um, a handsome young ranger, and also she falls in love with catching butterflies. The book has many historical characters in it, which was one of the most fun parts for me to write. I wanted to honor some of the people who, at least in my part of the world, Flagstaff, Arizona, are so infamous and famous, and to put them in a novel was really quite extraordinarily fun for me. Margaret, could you read a few paragraphs of your book just to give us an insight into uh, its style and what you'd like us to understand about the book? Yeah, Rick, I'd like to read to you and your listeners a few paragraphs that have to do with Jane Merkel, that's our heroine, her first sight of the Grand Canyon in daylight. And this might give people an idea of what the canyon looks like. It turns out that it's very difficult to describe Grand Canyon, and I hope I've, I've done it justice But you must come see it. That's really the way you see it. So Jane is driving along the rim with her in-laws, and this is how how the piece goes. Jane feels carsick but interested and peeks out across the vast space, bluish with haze. It is the first real look she's allowed herself, her first sight of the canyon in daylight. 
It's wider than she thought it would be. Somehow she imagined a slice, a sharp cut in the earth. But this is a ragged opening, full of what her in-laws call temples. Great vertical slabs of rock, flat-topped mountains, some of them tree-covered, others bare, rising up like islands in a dry sea. And everywhere a great convolution of folded land, everywhere the spidery dry pathways of water etching their way downward in dark lines. If she half-closes her eyes, she can see a great blue cloth, a heavy linen cloth folded upon itself in the blue haze, a lover's dress, a lover's cape flung to the floor, and the sky a blade of blue above it all, and the snow shining on the northern shore, of course it's a rim, but to her it's a shore, the far shore of a river of air and light suspended in space, suspended in spaciousness for goodness sake, not one bit like the river she grew up with, the muddy, shrieking, crowded, busy, bustling, big-shouldered, stevedored, hot, steamy, frozen, churning, legendary Mississippi. No, nothing like that. Suddenly it's all too much for her, the grandness, the majesty, the sheer size, the arousing sense of all that rock, sinuous rock, oh, it's too much. It overwhelms her as thoughts of death do, or the universe, which has no end anywhere, no edge. She closes her eyes and hears Oliver Hedquist say, Ten years of looking out at that miracle, and still I never see it to my satisfaction. Do you, Dottie? Now, wow. Dottie and Oliver are the couple she's gone to visit. Yeah. You sound almost evangelical about getting people to appreciate the Grand Canyon. <laughs> well, I suppose you've got a point there. I just find it to be such a marvel. And the more I go there, the more I find it to be a marvel, which is not true for every place. Uh, I think that's about looking more closely every time. Now, there's a fair amount of sex in your book. Do you find the Grand Canyon erotic? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. I, I was mean, surprised at not? that. You know, I mean, I just, and when I read it, there's a sort of an eroticism about describing it. Oh, yes. Well, I, I think if anybody actually puts themselves um, at the rim of the Grand Canyon and looks down into it and feels the heat if they're going in summer and just lets their gaze drift out at all the colors and land formations. And as I've tried to describe in that passage, it is just a, it is a very sexy place, come to think of it. I, well, you, I, I'm, you, I'm glad you brought that up, Rick. You inhale it. I mean, you inhale it and you hold it in. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be also because there's always that wandering river down at the bottom, which you can see sometimes from some vantage points and not see from others. Um, and you know, you know the river has done a great deal of the carving, though not all, the carving of the Grand Canyon, and yet it's hidden. It's a mystery. It's, it's like the unconscious almost. It dares you to go in. Yeah. Now, you're a, you're a guide, and you, you take people in. What's your greatest delight as a guide when it comes to sharing the wonders of the Grand Canyon? Um, I like it when people enjoy the food I make, but my greatest delight really, of course, is when I can take them to a place they wouldn't have gone to themselves, which they didn't know about, which may not be in the guidebooks, and they stand in front of it, usually some kind of water, waterfall, because there's a lot of water in Grand Canyon, even though we are in a desert. And the water maybe hits the light, and then it hits them, and they are speechless. Those are the great, great, great moments. That requires being still and being observant to observe how the light hits the water, something that some people need to be 
encouraged to do, I would imagine. I think you slow down. The minute you get below the rim, I really believe you slow down. Hmm. At least within the first two hours, almost everybody who's coming with me, they, they, everybody settles down. As a guide, I think it's important for you to actually enable people to do that. Yeah, and I'm helped so much by the place. I, I really have to do very little. It's not a hard place to work as a guide because the, the place runs the show. Hmm, that's but great. It, people become very, very still. They become much more observant. Mm-hmm. As much as they think they appreciate it going in, they almost always really understand what that appreciation means when they're in there for a day. Margaret Earhart's taken us into Grand Canyon on Travel with Rick Steves. It inspired her novel, The Butterflies of Grand Canyon. Margaret won the Milkweed National Fiction Prize for her book, Crossing Bully Creek, set in the deep south of the late 1960s. Her website is margaretearhart.com. That's E-R-H-A-R-T. Mark's on the line at 877-333-RICK from Tempe in Arizona. Thanks for calling, Mark. Hey, you're welcome. I enjoyed just listening to her uh, description, and I would absolutely agree with her that there's just no good way to describe the canyon uh, and I've tried to photograph it, and there's just no way to describe it to people. It's something that you really have to experience. Mark, have you experienced the Grand Canyon recently? The last time I was down was last year. That's fairly recent in geologic yeah. time. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely, especially when you think about the Grand Canyon. <laughs> well, Mark, there's a lot of ways you can better appreciate the, the Grand Canyon, being quiet, being still, looking at the bugs. What would your tip be? I think my best tip is being quiet, Uh, Watching the wildlife with your feet in one of the streams after you've hiked about 10 miles. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, I can relate to that. Oh, man, I think in any canyon, put your foot in the stream and watch the wildlife. That's a nice way to punctuate your hike. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Mark, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Maria's on the line in Lewiston, New York. Maria, thanks for your call. Welcome. My husband and I are preparing a, a, a trip to the Grand Canyon. And I heard that uh, there are they organize um, rides on horseback and on donkeys along the canyon, and I would like to know if they are by any chance dangerous or not advised for someone like me who has a vertigo, because I have no doubt in riding a donkey or a horse. But if the donkey goes along a very narrow path, very close to the to the canyon. Uh, I wonder if I wouldn't feel afraid. I wonder the same thing myself. Well, Maria, my my advice to you is to stay off. They're actually mules, and in some parts of the canyon they're horses. The mules are very sturdy animals, but vertigo is not the right thing to bring into Grand Canyon because everywhere you look there's great drop-offs. I think you might feel sturdier on your own two feet just walking down a little bit of a ways and then walking back out. That would be my advice. I actually have been in the Grand Canyon with somebody who had vertigo. I didn't know it till we were about oh, a quarter mile in. And it took us about 10 hours to go about three miles. And he, was, he, he tiptoed along and was quite frightened. And it taught me to ask that question before taking people in, do you have vertigo? Mm. It's quite a lovely place to visit, even if you just walk along the rim of Grand Canyon. I think that's good advice, Maria. Okay. Thank it, you. It doesn't, Thanks yeah, for your it doesn't mean you should, shouldn't go. I like that to walk in a little ways, get your dose, and then you can walk back out and you've, you've had yeah. it. And, you know, when I'm doing any um, mule or donkey ride in some great canyon or whatever, 
I'm nervous about the sure-footedness of the animals. Now, you've been doing this uh, professionally for a long time. It seems very ginger and, and very fragile, but these beasts of burden, do they ever, like, slip and roll down the mountain and take the tourist with them? They tend not to take tourists, but they break in these mules for a long time, Rick. And their first job is to carry supplies down to Phantom Ranch, which is at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Right. And so they carry stuff instead of people. And then when they are, have proved themselves to be very ah. reliable, then they, they carry people. But you do sometimes see that a, a pack mule has gone over. Really? But no, I would trust <laughs> them more than um, most people on their own two feet. Probably better than your own two feet, a, a mule's four feet. Yes, exactly. Okay. We're sharing observations about one of America's greatest sights, Grand Canyon, with Flagstaff-based writer Margaret Earhart on Travel with Rick Steves. You can read essays on modern life that Margaret writes for Flagstaff Live. It's in the notes to this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Elinda's on the line in Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania. Elinda, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I've not hiked in the canyon, but one of the things we did that we particularly enjoyed was at night we were able to get a guide that took us to watch the stars sitting our feet right by the edge of the canyon and looking up at all the stars, telling us the constellations. And I've never seen so many stars because, you know, you're far away from electric lights. So it was just a wonderful extra experience that I hadn't known about ahead of time. <laughs> that's great. Looking up instead of down at night, you can look up. Yes, right. that's good. And, you know, I, I've not uh, rafted the Grand Canyon, but I've rafted rivers in uh, beautiful places in Idaho. And in the middle of the night, when I go down to the river, I can look down and see the constellations. It's one of the most <laughs> magic experiences to see the constellations reflected in the water when you're in the yeah. middle of nowhere, when it's so dark out. It's just a beautiful thing. I have to say, too, Rick, speaking of the river, when you look up from the river at night, you're often in a very tight canyon or, or a narrow canyon, narrower mm -hmm. than most, because it's a mile below the rim. Right. So you just get a, a slim band of sky often, hmm. and that changes. As you wake up in the night, you can see, ah, the Big Dipper has moved. There's Cassiopeia now. It's wonderful. It's like, it's like watching a very small screen instead of the large one. Oh, that's a fun angle on Constellation watching. And Harry's on the line in Springfield, Virginia. Harry, thanks for your call. Yes. Hi, Rick. Hi, Hi Margaret. Hi. I, I've uh, done uh, five rim-to-rim, one-day hikes uh, across the canyon, and that, that's a wonderful adventure and a wonderful way to uh, spend the day. It's a long day, but very enjoyable. <laughs> so rim-to-rim, -rim, that means down one mile and then over and then up one mile, is that right? Yes, in one day. I've done five of those. How do you cross the river? There are two bridges there, uh, just a little south of the Phantom Ranch, one for the uh, South Kaibab Trail and one for the Bright Angel Trail. Yeah. Margaret, what's your take it's, on going rim to rim? I admire people who do it, and I think they're somewhat crazy. It's, tw <laughs> it's 21, 21 miles one way. I do know people who go rim to rim to rim, and that's really crazy. Wow. But I'll tell you what, you know, it's such a beautiful place to hike. I have never done a, a rim to rim in one day. I've just not... Uh, I get distracted by things on the ground, like, <laughs> well, things to look at. But I think uh, many people do, and, and I really do admire their fortitude in doing so. Harry, thanks for your, uh, your comment there. Okay, Rick, good talking with you. You bet. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Margaret Earhart, and her novel is The Butterflies of Grand Canyon. It's a mystery novel set in the Grand Canyon area about a woman visiting the canyon, becoming enthralled with its natural majesty, and with an attractive local ranger. And Margaret, I gather uh, there's a certain uh, amount of autobiography in this book. 
There's uh, quite a bit of autobiography in every book, um, no matter who we're portraying. There's probably a little less than usual in this one, except, of course, for the fact that here I am, somebody who's in love with the Grand Canyon, and I hope that people can feel that through my characters. And in love with the big grandeur of nature and in love with the micro-nature, you wrote this, Rocks, bugs, plants, each tells a story and their stories intertwine. Catch a butterfly and you've caught a world. You've caught a story. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, I mean, that butterfly, depending on the species, can tell you so many things. It can tell you that the climate is changing and warming or not. It can tell you stuff about the flora. The butterflies, of course, Mm -hmm. tell lots of stories about what plants are there because they pollinate and nectar on certain plants. As corridors of wildlife move across the land, uh, there are corridors for, for butterflies and bugs as well. We learn about all kinds of things from finding a certain species in a place we've never found it before. Things like the symbiotic relationship between plants and animals is always something that that teaches us about um, specifically climate. And also we can find fossils of dragonflies that tell us uh, what kind of weather was happening a million years ago, or in many cases, 250 million years ago. Wow. And the more you bring to that as a keen observer, probably the more you're able to get out of it. Yeah, I think so. That's right. that's one of my philosophies of life, Rick. Right. Is bring everything to it and, and you will reap more. Margaret, if you're thinking of one quintessential magical moment in the Grand Canyon that we would have if we went there and appreciated the Grand Canyon the way it's impacted you, paint a picture. What would that be? Well, you've spent two nights in the Grand Canyon already as a hiker. And on the third day, your guide says, Let's go somewhere we've never been before. And you clamber around a beautiful waterfall thinking, why are we going above this fall? I'm perfectly content to stay below it. And you find yourselves, all of you, there's a a small group, let's say, in a meadow that doesn't even have a trail in it because it's so seldom been explored. And the farther you walk in this meadow, the more waterfalls you see and you climb up above each one And finally, you can go no farther, but you have laid eyes on more water that day than you ever thought existed in the world. Then you go home, back to your tent, and after dinner, you lie out and look at the stars, and that's what I feel is a good day in the Grand Canyon. Wow. You inspire us and you challenge us to appreciate (laughs) the many dimensions of Grand Canyon. Margaret Earhart, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Casmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Andrew Wakeling uploads the shows to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had studio help this week from OPB in Portland and KNAU Flagstaff. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.